Influencers, inspiration, and Instagram, Instagram, Instagram. This is Earned by Tribe Dynamics. Here's Connor Begley. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Earned. Today, we're going to learn from one of the top beauty experts or clean beauty experts in the world, Sasha Plavsik. Welcome to the show, Sasha. Thank you for having me. So for those that don't know, uh, Sasha runs the brand Ilia Beauty, which is up 201% in EMV in 2020 after growing 89% in 2019, which growing 200% after growing 89% is pretty tough. Um, and you went from number 233 in terms of the makeup brand rankings in 2018. You passed 161 brands, including Bare Minerals, YSL, Estee Lauder, Shiseido, as of our January rankings. Um, and I don't even know if you knew all those stats, but uh, could you have imagined doing that two years ago? Is that what you expected to have happen? No, absolutely not. <laughs> um, I think it was really a breakout year for us last year, and there were a lot of decisions that had to be made on the fly, of which I'm really proud of my team for how we handled what was happening. And we were in a really fortunate position with our business in this industry and being able to, you know, quickly tack over to more of a D2C model uh, and put efforts in there, as well as even reappropriate our team. Um, we took our field team and moved them to customer service to help support that growth. So I think there were a lot of risks taken last year that gave us great results and in turn also helped, you know, climb the ranks at our major retailer, Sephora, um, as when we activate our D2C, it automatically also helps to raise everything up at Sephora as well. Yeah, no, I'd have to imagine. Are you going to keep that model? Are you going to keep the people kind of in customer service? I mean, that's it, to have the results that you had, it feels weird to screw with that formula now. Well, it wasn't in their job description, <laughs> even though the there is an element of the field that needs to have a customer service attitude because they're always with the customer. But I think it was a great way to reappropriate the position. There were so many beauty brands out there that had to lay off their field team when COVID hit because stores were closed. They didn't know when they were going to reopen. And we saw an opportunity where our dot-com was growing fiercely and yeah. we needed more support. It takes time to put that in place. We actually hired two specialists to help build out a new customer service team after the field with eight people. Um, so, And there was roughly eight people managing it with that growth from the field initially. So mm -hmm, they come mm -hmm. in and help us at times. They were even helping in social media to, to engage and answer questions. And they're the specialists. They know the shades, they know the products. And it actually, if anything, I think created a higher conversion overall because they are passionate about answering questions about product to help shade match customers. And it really, really worked for us at the time. Yeah, I mean, that's, I've said it, 20 times on this podcast now, but that's what makes the internet special, right? Is you can connect directly with your customer, even if you live across the globe in a way that's meaningful, um, that you just couldn't do in the past. And you can do it at scale, right? With tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of people. So that's really cool. Um, do you think, you know, talking kind of pre-pandemic, post-pandemic, in an interview you did with Priya on Glossy, you said that you guys were going to, uh, the plan was to double at a minimum this year. Now, most beauty brands did not double this year. So I'd be curious, were you able to, did you hit your targets or, or uh, was it, you know, did you face the same, same uphill battle everybody else did? 
We were really fortunate, and I think there was a few factors that came into play. Uh, we had a rebrand that happened exactly a year ago. Well, it actually started six months prior, and our CEO and my partner, Linda, said to me, you're crazy. There's no way we're going to rebrand in six months. I'd also just given birth to my second child, so I really felt like I wanted to challenge myself with everything at once. Um, but we did it because that was also my background, and I might have been naive to do it. I definitely put ops through hell, I think, to get it done. But we, we kicked off with that. We kicked off with an amazing complexion product. We, for the first time ever, we had marketing support around it. And no matter what happened last year in the world, which was plenty, we kept driving it. And because of that, yep. we were able to grow nearly 400%. That is an eye-popping number. I did not know that's how much you guys grew. <laughs> I'm letting <laughs> that it out is of a the bag. Of... <laughs> <laughs> that's that's going to be the headline of the podcast. That's, uh, that is crazy, considering what happened last year. Yeah. That we is really so, had so to, cool. We had to hold on to the rails. Whoa. Um, wow. I feel like I want to spend so much time on that. Um, okay. Let's, let's spend a little time on that. When you grow 400% in a year, what are the challenges? Okay. So it happened now. I mean, like you have four times as many customers, right? You have, or not exactly, but you have a lot more customers. You have a lot, like you have to scale the team. What are, what are the challenges of that? Well, the beauty about it is that it doesn't happen all at once. And yep. you don't even really know what's happening until you're in it. So I think, mm -hmm. you know, COVID hit and like many businesses, we decided to adjust our forecast. Um, we were, I think we were planning to grow 100%. That was our initial forecast or just under, like you had mentioned. And we decided to even downscale in March yep. further. And there was a few areas that we made sure that we were really careful because you can downscale you know, your purchase orders for finished goods, but uh, unfinished, you know, we made sure that we we didn't per se, um, because if we did, it would have put us in a much harder position. I don't know if many people know, but in this industry, especially in beauty in general, you have a really long lead time, you know, from the concept all the way to completion when you're ordering your product. So I think we set ourselves up in a position that way uh, that was fortunate enough to be able to capture the growth. Uh, mm -hmm. the team we had to hire, you know, and that we did the best we could to be able to accommodate. We were so lucky to have finished our second round of funding yep. at the end of 2019. Good timing. It was good timing. And I actually like a challenge. And our CEO, you know, she, she said to me, I've never been through anything like this before. And Linda Berkowitz, that's her name. She's very seasoned. She was the president of Too Faced. Mm -hmm. uh, SVP over at Bobby Brown, a real industry veteran. And she kept saying to me, I've never been through this before. And I said, that's okay. I haven't either. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't been through many things before, even though I've been doing this for 10 years and we're just going to figure it out. And I think to me, I, I didn't have a fear around it as much because I do believe that when you're an entrepreneur, you have to be somewhat crazy to start yeah, something. Yeah. And you don't really know anything anyways when you start for the most part, you know, maybe some things, but you certainly don't know very much. And that's the whole point. So we didn't know how to deal with it. And we just had to just, we had to look at each scenario that came before us and make the best decision possible. And thankfully, I think we made good decisions. Yeah. I mean, that's, we've gone through periods like that. We're growing, we're still growing really quickly right now, but we're growing over a hundred percent, you know, multiple years in a row and things just start to break because it's just hard to predict what's going to break and where it's going to break. 
Um, but I think like you said, you just have to figure it out. Like, hey, all right, this is breaking. Let's fix it. Um, I get, having Linda there has got to be super helpful. I'd have to imagine, you know. Um, Best decision I made. Yeah, I mean, that's what was that a tough decision? Like getting somebody, I mean, because you founded the company. And I think the way that what was interesting was when I was reading about the way that you talked about your relationship, it sounds very similar to the relationship that I have with my co-founder, John, right? Um, where it's like, you know, division of responsibilities, a lot of faith and trust in the other person to be good at the things that they're good at. Um, but that's not the way that you started out, right? You started mm -hmm. out on your own. Was that, if you're going back, would you have started with somebody else or did it kind of make sense from a timing perspective that you brought her on when you did? It, timing, I think timing is everything. And it did make yeah. sense at that time. You know, the brand, the idea came to me initially in 2009 and okay. there was two years of alone time in my brain and working actually at other jobs, um, of which I was forthright with one of the jobs. I went to go rebrand, uh, essential oil company called Sage. Mm -hmm. And I remember I said to her heads up, you know, I'm working on this project at night. And of course I'm going to be here in the day, but I'll probably only be here for this period of time. And, um, I'm really happy if I look back at the beginning that I was alone. I think it, I naturally, I think I'm an introvert and I like to be in my thoughts. It's where I get to go dream, which is what I think you need to do as an entrepreneur. And, uh, some people know, but my brother did come and join me two yep. years after I launched. So technically I'd already been four years on my own because it took two years to go to market of which going to market was walking into a little boutique and Asking to carry my my the product go to market strategy. I go to market strategy. Do you want to sell some of my lipsticks? You know, one one store at a time, um, which you could do a decade ago. It was different. I don't think you could do that today. But um, it there just came a point. You know, there's my brother. I love him, and we did so much together, and he was such an emotional support for me. But there's a level of expertise that needs to come into play when a business starts to scale. And yeah. I think there's a threshold that is different for everyone, but a founder can generally feel it. Sometimes you're maybe in denial about when that is, but I, I became very clear after five years, which is a long time. And it was very small, the operation we had, but it became clear, especially when I went to Sephora for a third or fourth meeting and they said, we want to test you. And I think I just had my first kid. I had, my father had passed away that year. There was all this stuff and I was really vulnerable and I turned to the head of color there and said, um, I'm excited for this opportunity, but I don't know what I'm doing in this area. I don't understand your world of retail. I know the boutique side and uh -huh. I need help. And she said to me, I have somebody for you. And that's how mm. we met. Wow. So is that what they mean when they say Sephora is a brand builder? Is that like, is that the, uh, <laughs> is it that? I mean, like, and I mean that actually in a totally serious way, which is like, they're so plugged into the ecosystem, Amazon's not going to do that for you, right? That's not going to be something that Amazon's going to be capable of doing. And and as subtle as that sounds, like, I mean, that has got to be a huge part of the, the story, right? Like a huge part of why you guys absolutely, you Absolutely. I mean, today I think it's a combination of our D2C and then our brick and mortar with Sephora. But there's a huge D2C component with them as well. And we have become stronger partners over the years. Linda's relationship with them was paramount. I have a lovely relationship with a senior merchant there who had reached out to me in 2012 when the brand was only a year old and said, I love what you're doing and I'm watching. And I told her I had no money and I had to wait, <laughs> truthfully. Um, but, yeah. but it was 
um, that moment when we decided to start testing was definitely a turning point for the brand across the board because I also reformulated half the brand. So I kind of chucked out Mm -hmm. half of what we had and had to start over the rebranding, everything. And if you are behind them in making, you know, something great, they are, to me, in my experience, they are behind you. And Mm -hmm. I've heard so many people say Sephora can crush a brand. And I believe there could be truth to that, but we have been in a very fortunate position and in my eyes have a great relationship with them to want to build something together. And who better than them to put a brand on the map? They've done that previously with many brands. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I don't think those brands would have gone to where they went to without them. And I would believe the same for us. Yeah. I mean, if they put their weight behind you, I'm sure it can be super powerful, right? Yes. Um, Does it become tough with them kind of balancing this direct consumer component? Because obviously for you guys, being able to own that customer relationship is so critical. But, you know, that disintermediates Sephora from that discussion. Is that is that a tough thing to manage, that balance? Um, the You mean our direct-to-consumer? Yeah, like your own, like you guys want to sell on your website, right? Like that's something that you want to do, but that's a customer that Sephora doesn't get, right? And so has that success that you've seen on the direct-to-consumer side <laughs> created any strain there in that relationship? Or are they um, just, you know, happy for the brand? I don't know if happy for the brand would be the the right way to to word it. I think that the word balance is important. And for example, we will drive to our website whenever possible, but we also provide opportunity and moments that are earmarked and discussed where we will drive to their website. Uh, I think a customer may discover through one of our ads and come to us. But if they're a really loyal Sephora customer, they want to buy six things in their basket from different brands and want their points, they'll they'll go over there. Um, so I think to me, we've actually got a perfect balance of customers uh-huh. who will shop with us and the customers who are capturing through our spend in ad and then yep. going to them because we've seen a rise on both sides and they've been pretty neck and neck, I would say. Um, so it's a win-win from that standpoint. And then if you solidify a stronger partnership with them, you know, we've decided to, um, to do that in the last year, they, it's like, you're kind of putting, you know, pedal to the metal, so to speak, and they will support you in other ways of which it's to their benefit as well. So, of course, um, yeah, all tides rise. I think that isn't always true, but in our case, it has been. Yeah. I mean, if, if you're being successful as a brand and they are carrying you as a brand, it, it is ultimately having a positive effect for them, right? You're bringing people to the store, people like the brands that are in the store, you know, I mean, it, it just, it, but it is, it's a, it's a balance, like you said, yeah. I think. Um, so, you know, so, okay, so you've grown 400%. I'm still kind of in a little bit of shock here. So we are too. <laughs> so one of the things that you talked about kind of in that interview with Priya and in other interviews is really investing in the team. I would imagine that the investments that you made, you know, one, two, three years ago are really paying dividends now. What were the areas that you invested in that are paying off now? And what are some of the areas where you're like, well, this is an area we need to get better, right? Or an area where we think we can get a lot of leverage. I'd love to hear about those two, those two elements. Yeah, I think, I mean, we've really only invested in the team heavily, even in the last six months at the end of 20. Yeah, it's, I actually say that's probably at the forefront of my mind among a few other things. Um, 
At the end of 2019, we were 27 people. At the end of 2020, we were close to 60. Yeah, yeah. So it's insane growth. Hiring the right leadership is really important and making sure we get that right, making sure it's a cultural fit. And cultural to me is also just a way of communicating, you know, having a mm -hmm. sense of humor, perhaps um, having a passion towards, you know, the type of products that we're building and what we're trying to do with, you know, with the brand as a whole. Uh, so I think building the team out, the teams out is, it's a huge challenge. The people make the brand to me mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. they make what you're doing a real company. Um, I can have great product, I can have great marketing, but if I don't have a team around me to support that, it's it would never be where it is today. And I think being able to recognize, for personally for me, I mean, now there's so many people being hired that I don't even interview, but personally for me, somebody who can do something better than yourself. So that's why Linda came on board. You know, operationally, yeah. she's to me one of the best in the industry and can manage that. And then in other areas as well, you know, everybody kind of has to be their own unicorn. And then you have to build down. Where I think it gets hard, and I would say the biggest challenge, is linking all those teams together. So those mm -hmm. teams can be quite connected, but then they ha you have to cross over, literally, like skates, you know, all the time, especially when there's so many new people. And that's an area that we are always working on, as so many brands mm -hmm. are. Um, we have a pro senior project manager starting and a couple other people to help really solidify that and... Um, and then just making sure people talk to each other respectfully. <laughs> Which sounds obvious, but not always, <laughs> doesn't always happen. Um, yeah, it's tough when you have, I think there's a, a few things that you bring up that, or a few things that I think of that you talked about here. One is, yeah, we're at 50 people now, right? Roughly 50 people. And like, you know, when it was me and John, I was 50% of the company. And now I'm 2%, right? Like it, yeah. from a pure headcount perspective. And so, you know, the people you hire, like you said, do end up becoming the company. Like I am not the person that talks to our customers the vast majority of the time anymore. And so if they are not getting the right level of service, like that's ultimately because of who we hired, right? Or because of, you know, the culture that we instilled. And so I think that's a, the first one. And then on the kind of the, the kind of dynamics of the team, I think when it becomes really hard is when you have, you know, you can have two really strong performers in different departments that don't necessarily see eye to eye, right? And you say okay. like, well, you guys are both so good at your jobs. And the fact that you don't see that in the other person is like crazy to me, right? And so it's a tough, it's a tough thing to balance. It's a tough thing to manage. Um, yeah. Yeah, no, I think uh, that the last part that you said, people seeing eye to eye, and a lot of it is really down to communication. It's usually mm -hmm. a simple miscommunication that can yep. get misconstrued. And then really, I think part of it is finding a way to make people talk to each other. And that was becoming more of a full-time job for me last year um, until we recently hired an SVP of marketing that yep. absolutely removed so much pressure off of me um, from the process management side. And now I can start to think again about what I want to do with the brand and that I wish I did that sooner. You know, that's like one regret. Like, why didn't we hire that position sooner? But I think if I look back at last year, we had to do so much, you know, there, and we wanted to find the right person. You know, uh, Linda's motto is hire slow, fire fast. And we had to hire fast, you know? Yeah, so yeah. I think you, you work with what you have. 
you see who works. Some people will tell you if it isn't working, you know, and and fit is important. And if somebody's really not happy, um, you can give it a go with them to find ways to empower them and make them happy. But if it's not for them, it's not for them. And they'll probably be happier somewhere else. And I think that's something I really need to keep top of mind as we get bigger and bigger. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, it's uh, there's a few people that have done a good job of that. I think it was Zappos where they paid you if you decided you didn't like after you got hired in the first like two or three weeks, you could opt for like it was like a ten thousand dollar bonus to to leave, right? Like they'd write you a check for ten grand and you could leave, and um, or something like that five ten grand or Netflix, right? Is very big on that like opt in or opt out culture where it's like hey, yeah. if it's not a fit, it's not a fit. Um, you know, all this talk, you know, talking about communication a lot. One of the things that you guys have talked about is this idea of transparency being like a core value to the company. And I think that whether it was, um, you know, luck or, or intention or whatever, I think that that's, that's a value that I think is really that, that consumers are really into. What made you kind of zero in on that as like, this is going to be a core value for the company. This is something that I think is going to be critically important to our success. I'm going to cough for a moment. <coughs> no, Sorry. do your thing. I know. I'm You're just getting over a cold, right? Do you want yeah. to, do you want to go get some tea or something? <laughs> no, I've got water next to me, but like the air is dry in my room and I'm like, Oh, don't cough during the interview. <laughs> no, no, no. Feel free to cough. We can literally there, after this, we're going to go through and cut and edit it and slice it so that it fits all together. <laughs> so cough away. Water. I know. Here. You're, you're a trooper for even still doing it. Oh no. I mean like it's an ongoing saga with a sinus infection of which I'm sorry I sound a little stuffed it's not the rona it's not the corona <laughs> so um okay back to the question the question was so it was you know why is transparency like a core value for you guys like what is it that you know you zeroed in on obviously for consumers it's a big deal right now right like what is it in the products i'm putting on my skin Right. So that's become a topic of conversation, but you decided that a long time ago. I did. So what was it that made you kind of zone in on that as, as being kind of core? Um, I think it's just being curious. You know, for me, that's what it was 12 years ago. And I was raised with, I don't want to say more of a paranoid mother, but I had a really sick brother as a kid and he had autoimmune issues. He had asthma he was supposed to live in the hospital indefinitely on a ventilator. There was so much that came up. And this was the early 80s when, you know, technology and even just an understanding of how to work through this, it was not as probably well studied at that time. And I think yep. what she really instilled with me in, into me was to look further, you know, than what you're being told or what you're being sold. And in marketing and in products, what you're being sold doesn't always line up with the truth. And I think we all know that in, inherently, yep. Yep. but in the beauty industry specifically, it can be pretty bad or it used to be. And back then I just wanted to know more about what was in my products. And what I found was that when I was looking for products that were more natural or classified as green at the time, they really weren't. And mm -hmm. I thought, why are these people lying? You know what? Yeah. This isn't very honest. And if I was thinking that way, I'm sure that if many other people were to find out, you know, that there's some greenwashing happening, maybe they would think that way as well. And they mm -hmm. did. It took them mm -hmm. time. But over the last decade, 
not only have people begun to question what's in their beauty products, people have begun to question everything to a point of fault, which I believe happened in 2020. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, the internet is great and there's a lot of information, but I think people have also taken advantage of that. So transparency is important and there will always be elements in any business or in the world that are covering up parts of information, whether it's for the good or for the bad. And I think it's up to us as people, you know, to find what feels right and to seek out what we want to live with and be comfortable with. And Mm -hmm. there's an element of just, I don't know. I think if you are vulnerable and open with your customers, you develop trust. And that to me is really the essence of transparency. Yeah. I mean, it makes a ton of sense. The word trust was the one that kept running through my mind as you were talking. It's like, it's all about trust. And I think a lot of people have as, because I think what the internet's done, right, is it's, it's provided a lot of information, right? Good, bad, and otherwise. Mm -hmm. And um, I think that's caused people to go, oh, wow, like, this isn't what I thought it was. This isn't what I've been told for so long. And so when they do find somebody like Everlane does this in the, uh, in the, apparel space where you can actually just see that it's not transparency from a, you know, ingredients perspective, but transparency and like, this is how much it costs us. These luxury brands that are charging you $95 for a t-shirt, it costs them $8 to make it right. And we're not going to charge you 95. We're going to charge you 20. Right. And you can see all of the, you know, and this is how we pay our bills is with this margin. And so I think there's just a variety of places where that's happened. And it's, uh, yeah, it's just really cool to see like, People respect it. I, yeah. And then good wins, right? The the better products tend to win in that environment. Not yeah. always, but they tend to. So now that we've touched on all the company stuff, let's talk about marketing because everybody wants to know what's the playbook that's going to help me grow 400% year over year. And obviously, you know, not marketing isn't the only thing that gets you there, but I know you've invested a lot in that in the last you know year or so. Um, you know, what, what is Ilya's marketing playbook? Like, what does it look like? What are the components that you can talk about that, you know, you found work really well? Um, it is important. We didn't really do any until a year ago. So when we launched our super serum skin tint SPF 40, that was the first time that we had more of a 360 approach where we had online ads, you know, that were user generated, uh, content. We had billboards. We wrapped a bus. We had a launch event. We planned an exclusive for press. All like every kind of pillar of marketing that you could touch, we touched for the first time. Mm-hmm. Luckily, it was a great product. Luckily, we had a rebrand to give us a fresh new look. And I think that caught people's attention. With the pandemic hit- hitting last year, there was a lot of decisions that needed to be made. But one of them was easy online. Mm-hmm. So we really mm-hmm. picked up our ad spend because of what was happening with the pandemic, there was also a period of time where you could buy at a lot lower price. Mm -hmm. So our VP of e-commerce was able to really focus in on that. And we tested, I like to me again, we were able, okay, we're in a pandemic. What's going to happen. We knew last year, regardless that it was going to be a year of testing, you know, Mm -hmm. let's test this type of content. Let's test that type of content. But to me, marketing is really a maze of content of which you have mm-hmm. top of the funnel, which is more campaign related, yep. middle of the funnel, you know, kind of, it's more continuous. And then bottom of the funnel is where you have that conversion with your ads. So how do we pull somebody in and drag them all the way through? And 
we also hadn't done that properly yet. So once you start to activate all areas of the funnel, I think you should be able to see a difference. Mm-hmm. Um, and to take risks, you know, billboards were really inexpensive and still are. And we decided to drive that continuously of which do they work? Not measurable. <laughs> Just straight up. Can't measure it. Think it works. <laughs> I know. Water break. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Not measurable, but I had friends that I haven't spoken to in years text me and say, I see you everywhere visually. I'm yep. seeing you everywhere. And that makes me think that other people are seeing us everywhere. And we found out soon enough that they were. So that worked for us. Would it work for somebody else? You won't know till you try. And I yep. think that's the trick to marketing is you don't know until you try. You have to be willing to take a risk. You do need to have money, which means you should have funding if you really want to be able to go after it. And I think that's the one area I didn't have an opportunity to run with until we were properly funded. Yep. Um, I basically had product and word of mouth and it took us, you know, far enough, but it will only take you to a point where you're known as a niche brand that has great product. We want, I, I wanted us to be bigger than that. And in order to do it, you have to hit hard to create brand awareness. Yeah, that makes sense. I think the things that stand out are the one Product is the key, right? So it doesn't matter how good your initiative is. If the product isn't there, it doesn't matter how much money you spend, I think, these days. Um, Two, I think that strategy you're talking about, there's a really good book called Blockbuster that talks about this kind of approach, which is like, it's like all in really fast, all at the same time. It's the strategy that was historically utilized for movies, right? But you can use it in other, other categories where it's like, oh my God, this is everywhere, right? It's in the influencers, it's on billboards, it's on a bus, my friends are talking about it, right? And you create this, um, yeah, it's just this moment in time that really kind of catapults uh, the product or the brand at that point. So, and I think given that beauty brands are so hero product driven that, you know, like people, I, I honestly believe that people are a lot more product loyal than they are brand loyal these days. Yes. It's not that people aren't brand loyal, but they're like, I want the best product from this person and this person and this person and this person. Like I want my brow products from Anastasia or Benefit. I want my lip products from this person with this product, you know? So it makes a lot of sense. Like if you have a killer product, go all in, right? Like let's make this a moment. Um, so that's really cool. Um, so you, you mentioned at the beginning before we got online that you aren't going to divulge any of your influencer secrets, but I'm still going to ask the question. <laughs> so talk to me about your influencer approach. Like what's worked for you guys? Like obviously from a numbers perspective, it was already growing 20 last year, 90% this year, over 200%. Um, talk to me a little bit about your approach there, at least your philosophies. Well, I think it needs to be well-managed mm-hmm. and you need to have a person there who really knew, knows how to wrangle that area. Um, you know, again, it's about testing. A lot of things can happen organically. I believe there's a lot of micro influencers out there who, if they love the brand and they're passionate about your product, they will, they will give you a shout out. There can actually be big influencers out there that we've noticed. We didn't even know that they had the product and they gave us a shout out. And that to me is always such a great feeling because it says that this person loves the product. They're being really transparent and vulnerable and 
honest about that in front of their consumers and doing it out of the goodness of their heart, you know, of which, or because they just love something so much of which to me, that's like, that's the highest caliber you can kind of get. But then from there, you have to populate it in between, you know, so there's probably some areas that need to be paid. Mm -hmm. And that's an area you can test. And that's an area definitely to negotiate. Um, And then there's another area that's very organic. Uh, You can have affiliate programs in place, which give a kickback. You know, if somebody clicks or swipes up and they make a purchase, there's a kickback that actually is beneficial to an influencer because at the end of the day, that's their business. Yeah. So they they should be able to make money too. Um, And making it more of a partnership. I think is really what it's about and how do you do that in a way where you have a respectful business partnership or relationship with that person or all those people to be the ambassador for your brand. Yeah. I mean, I I love that kind of long-term approach in all the data that we see. It's just, if you're resetting every year with totally new people, it's impossible, right? It's impossible to build kind of an empire that way. And so, you know, and I like that you're balanced, right? You're doing, you're working on affiliates, you've got some paid partnerships, you've got all the organic coverage. And I think also seeing how those things play together, right? Because one does drive the other and can negatively drive it, right? You go out and you pay the wrong people and you support the people, like you support people that don't support you. Then all of a sudden everybody who's been supporting you says, hey, why, why are you leaving me out in the cold, right? Like I'm running a business here as well. Why, why am I not being shown the love? So, yeah. It's a challenge. That's a challenge in itself. Yeah. But I think, again, it's that person. You need to have a people person there to manage that relationship and like a partnership. You know, there's certain give or takes. Yeah. And you have to be able to read that. And they're there to take a piece of the pie, too. And I think as long as there's a certain understanding of what the give and take is on both sides up in an upfront manner. Um, then you can have real success because both people are winning. And when both are winning, they keep coming back. Yeah. What, when you're, you've talked about the kind of right person a couple times here, what, what are the elements of somebody like, if, you know, now that you have hired somebody, what are the elements that make somebody successful at running one of those programs? If I'm trying to hire them as a, as a CEO myself? Um, they have to be really good in social media. You know, yeah. they have to understand Instagram. They have to know how to engage, how to interact. Also, I think they have to be able to know how to find people. Mm-hmm. So there's certain people that have a knack to be able to go and look for, you know, what type of ambassador would suit this brand, you know, what, and, and they have to be able to look at it again across multiple channels. You know, is that, is that influencer only in beauty? Probably not. Mm-hmm. Is she in wellness with our type of brand? Probably yes. And then tapping into all those elements and being able to see, wider. I think, you know, like that's what I say to my team, especially as we grow. <coughs> Sorry. Oh, grab some water. It's okay. <laughs> like I haven't had a, a cough attack in this whole recovery period from my cold. And it's really common. So I've had it happen to me on panels like a hundred times. Like it's especially when I used to travel to New York because I travel on a plane and I don't drink that much <laughs> dry water. Air. Dry air, right? And I get out there and when I was in New York, I would do 10 meetings in a row and in a single day, nine, 10 meetings. And I was the primary person talking the whole meeting. So by the end, you get to day two, day three of that and my voice is toast. So 
I used to buy these. It was like the gnarliest cough drop you could buy. And it was like, I found the one with the most medicine. So my throat was just in a constant state of being of numbness. Com- completely numb. Like they were like, you know, the normal cough drop, but it would have the, uh, you know, like the, the medicine, like just like pure liquid, I, I don't know, whatever. It felt like my, the back of my throat was frozen. Um, and I would put those in before a meeting. It was probably gross listening to me suck on a cough drop, but it was the only way I could make it through like a, you know, day three. That's like, that makes me feel really normal right now. <laughs> I hope it does because it is normal, right? I, uh, I don't know. You, you, you push yourself when you're trying to get something off the ground. Um, I actually think we should keep that section in. Let's keep it in. Okay. Um, so let's, uh, so let's talk about kind of, um, there's two, th- two more things I want to talk about and then we'll do a couple fun questions at the end. Um, Mm -hmm. So the first one is, you know, we talked a lot about how you changed your approach during COVID as an organization. Um, But now as we come out of that, you know, as people are getting vaccinated, we're planning for the second half of the year with, you know, presumably a lot more people, at least in the U.S., being able to kind of go about their business in a more normal way. Uh, How are you guys adapting to that? Right. Like what? What are you thinking about for the second half of the year uh, when it comes to, you know, marketing, the business, et cetera? Stay on course. Yeah. I think, you know, the decisions that we made last year, it's it's like we just kept going as if nothing had happened. And yes, we had to you know, invest more effort online and put a focus, you know, not just online with us, but online with our other retailers as well and put a focus there. Um, there will be more virtual shopping. So in a, for us specifically, we are launching a shade finder mm-hmm. that actually helps to shade match you in a much more appropriate way than what we have now. Customer service, being able to upload photos, just having that interaction with the customer virtually in the same way that you would in store. And then in store, making sure that our field is fully equipped and with everything that they need to be able to you know, deliver great service and hopefully, you know, get people excited about the product Um, of which on top of it, then it's adding all the marketing around it from a blockbuster effect, which could be Mm -hmm. in influencers. Uh, We have a huge campaign coming out um, next week, which is celebrating the one year anniversary of our super serum skin tint. Mm -hmm. And we'll be doing shade extensions in both of those and heroing that out as a celebration, um, an emotional celebration for this launch Um, And I think that's one of the things that we tapped into last year. You know, people don't just want to see the fluff of marketing. They want something real, transparent, authentic. And that's always very much who we've been at our core. It's Mm -hmm. who I am. I don't Mm -hmm. think I've been able to bring it to the surface, but their customers looking for that. The younger generations want that. They want that truth serum, so to speak. And I think if that can be implemented in your plan and in your marketing, um, you can go much further in being able to grab somebody's attention. Yeah, that makes sense. It's uh, it's funny that like the yeah, because like, like okay, things are going to change. But it's like no, no, no. Like this is working. Don't screw it up. <laughs> like keep it going. You know, it's because uh, I don't think that's what everybody's doing. So that's really cool to hear. Um, okay, last question. Then we'll go to the some of the fun questions at the end. So uh, if you were to give advice to somebody starting a brand today, um, what would that advice be? Like if you could give them two or three nuggets. Oh, when the going gets tough, don't give up. Yeah. I think that when you're starting, 
<clears throat> it can be really discouraging because a lot of people may not want to see you succeed. That's just the truth. And there can be a lot of fear. There can be a lot of doubt. Will this work? Will this not? I think what you have to remember is that when you start something, you won't know about it. You won't be an expert. And you have to be okay with that. You have to be willing to fail. You have to be willing to make mistakes and know that you'll learn from them. Um, I, one of the biggest things about being an entrepreneur is problem solving. And there will always be a host of problems in front of you, of which my motto is, you know, there is a solution to every problem. You may not always like the solution, but there is a solution. <laughs> yeah. And as long as you put one foot in front of the other and solve for, you know, the problems that come up in the best way you can, you can keep going. Yep. Money is also important, but, you know, my advice there is work with what you can. I would say make sure you, you're really clear about what your you know, what your intention is. Do you want to go big, loud, and fast? Do you want to have a slower build? Be clear about what that intention is and then build around it in a way that um, can make you successful. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, money is important. <laughs> money is important. Well, I started with right so time. little... Yeah. What? Go ahead. I was going to say, I started with so little money, but you could do that 10 years ago. I started with 25000 like yeah. a line, a line yeah. of credit and two credit cards. I've said that so many times and... That took me far back then. But today, if you really, it's so much more saturated depending on what you're doing. And if you want to make noise, you have to be able to do it a little differently. So I do think some funding needs to come into to, to play in today's day and age. But ask people, you know, lean into people that are doing it around you. Um, ask lots of questions and don't feel bad about it. Yeah. I mean, that's, I remember having a conversation with one of our earliest investors and I think we were in year two or year three and you were starting to make a little bit of money at that point, not a lot. And, uh, and we also similarly started with like a very small amount of money to start. And, uh, and he's like, Oh, he's like, you guys made it. I'm like, what do you mean? He's like, well, whenever you people start, he's like, cause he invests in like the earliest, earliest stages of companies. Like he wrote us a check for 20 K right. Or 15 K or something. And he's like, you know, I've done a lot of these. He's like in companies, he's like, you have this like six month honeymoon phase. You're like, oh, it's so exciting. Da, da, da. And you have like the six months of like, this isn't working or like, you know, just, just everything doesn't feel like it's working. And then he's like, a lot of people give up. And he's like, it's about a year. He's like, most people give it a year. And if it's not like, you know, roses and unicorns, right? Like they're out. And he's like, you guys made it through your past a year. And I was like, oh, okay, cool. Didn't know this was a something we should be celebrating, but awesome. Um, so yeah, it's just, just continuing. Like <laughs> we used to talk about at the beginning, like, just don't die. Just don't let don't the die. company die. <laughs> don't die. Yeah. People say like, oh, you're starting a business. When I told people that I was going to start a lipstick company and being from Canada where it's more socialist and more government run, people thought I was crazy. Yeah. You know, that's one thing about the U S that is amazing. You, you come down here and people are like, yeah, go for it. You know, there's a go, go for it attitude. Whereas where I'm from, it's like, you're going to do what, you know? And I think, um, so many people, I, if I could count, I think I'd run out of fingers to have, to, if I remember how many people actually said to me, you know, that X out of how many businesses fail a year, you know, how are you going to make it? Yeah. And that's such a discouraging thing to say to somebody. And Bro, those of you out there who are wanting to start and somebody says that to you, just tell them to go away <laughs> and, and, and make up in your mind that you're not, you're going to be in the percentage that makes it. 
and yeah. you will do whatever it takes to go there um, and believe in yourself because when you when we stop believing in ourselves or our idea other people feel that and then they won't believe it in either I and mean, that's kind of like a west coast energy thing um and i am from the west coast but truly there's like you got to believe in yourself yeah 100 percent. i remember for me when we first started tribe i didn't like to tell people what we were doing because like i actually grew up as much as it's like us celebrates like starting companies I grew up, my mom and my dad, my dad, they were both at their, their respective enterprises for 30 years. And like, for me, being an entrepreneur was like basically being unemployed, like, oh, you're an entrepreneur. And so I actually right. didn't like to tell people for like the first couple of years what we were doing. Um, but I think that that honestly, even just in the last eight to 10 years, I think that's totally changed. Like, I think the perception around, um, you know starting your own thing has now become almost glamorous, right? Um, so, yeah. It is. Yeah. And, and it's not. <laughs> you no, know, it's nothing. It nothing about it. Isn't. Yeah. Um, okay, cool. Let's do a couple quick hitters at the end. So what is your, if you were to have a vice and or also labeled an indulgence, what would be your vice or your indulgence? In work or personally? Either one. Doesn't matter. Oh, a vice... Time management, I would say, is, you know, I have somebody managing it for me now, which is much more helpful, but I can be late, I'm told, at times, and I'm trying to work on that this year. Um, So, yeah, I'd say time management, of which it's tough when you're an entrepreneur, if you're juggling a bunch of things, but I'm committed to be better at it and to manage my time effectively because if you're also an entrepreneur with a family, you have to give time to many areas. So time management is a big one for me that is always a work in progress. Yeah, I was the same way. And then I invested in it pretty heavily, like three years ago. Um, And it's been, I'm really happy with like the time that I spent doing that. Like, you know, basically for the most part, never late to meetings. I like block out almost my entire calendar. I have like a whole system with my wife where I start work at 8.30 and I finish at 5.00. And there's days where I need to start earlier or end later. But what I do is I like trade times. So I'm like, okay, I need an extra hour in the morning. I'll give you an hour back at the end or an hour in the middle. Cause like, you know, you have to be intentional about how you spend your time. Otherwise, you know, you're like, oh wow, I haven't spent any time with my kids in the last two weeks. Right. So it's, uh, I, I, it's, I'm glad you're doing that. I, it's been super, super impactful for me. Um, yeah, important. So last one, when you need to break away from the office, what is your happy place? Oh, I think that's a tough one to answer because I feel like it's Groundhog Day at home in my home (laughs) office. But at the end of the day, I'd be going for a walk with my kids down the street. My little two-year-old, she's on a Strider bike. And it's so, I always think, wow, you were born two years ago and here you are gliding on your Strider bike up and down the street. And I love it. I love to be able to just take a moment, you know, and go outside and go for a walk. And uh, I think it probably used to be different, you know, when things were more social, but that in itself to me is really special. Um, Otherwise, I've also tried to create time for myself in the morning. Mm -hmm. You know, somebody said, if you're not well, those around you who look up to you or who you're taking care of will also not be well. Mm -hmm. And I definitely, I used the word shattered the other day. You know, I, I think the last 10 years of not having really downtime shattered me. And I made a commitment to myself this year to be more selfish with my time. Even like you said, to block off, I block off from eight to 10 in the morning. And 
if people really need me, they know that they can get in there. But for the most part, it's my time to, if I have to record something, you know, that's even work related or exercise, find moments to myself. Um, so I can also have time to think, you know, and I think that's, you know, that, that to me is one of the most gratifying things to do. It's really hard to do, but my, my wife's family is much better at that than I am. And I kind of observe that about them where they like, like, no, you know, like with my family, if we get together for the holidays, like you are there with the family, like you do not leave. Right. But they'll like get together and like, Hey, I'm going on a run or I'm going on a walk. or I'm going to do this thing. And for me, it was like, this is so weird. Like, how are you leaving the family during the holidays? But it's like, you know, and they very much have this philosophy of like, you know, you got to make sure that you're right to be right for everybody else too. So it's, uh, yeah, huge fan. Well, anyways, Sasha, I really appreciate you taking out the time and toughing it through a lost voice um, or losing a voice that you might lose after this call. And, um, you know, one story that I remember that I think is really cool is I think we were on the stage at some event years ago. I can't remember how long ago it was, maybe five, six years ago. I just remember like seeing you and you're talking about Ilya. And then it was like, and I didn't really hear about you guys for a little while. It was like, it went silent for a couple of years and you guys have just exploded back on the scene in the last two years of my life. And it's just, it's so cool to see. So congrats on, on all the hard work. Oh, thank you. That was probably, in, it was in New York. Probably. Yeah. I, I can't remember. All I know is I remember being on stage. We were both on a panel together and everybody like, huh, like I kind of like what she said there. Like, and it just stuck with me. Oh, good. That makes me happy. <laughs> yeah. But uh, thanks so much for taking the time. I, we really appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for having me. It's, uh, it was great to talk with you and can't wait to listen. Yeah. People are going to dig it. Bye, Sasha. Bye. Hit subscribe now. Earned by Tribe Dynamics. Tribe Dynamics unlocks your social media influencer community. Our platform not only tracks and measures your best influencer relationships, but discovers new influencers to grow your business through earned media. Get started with a demo today at tribedynamics.com. Tribedynamics.com.